Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think the American people are thirsty for change. I think they are hungry for leadership. And frankly, they know that the White House can't provide it. They know the Senate won't lead. And they are looking for House Republicans to step up and lead and make change on these important issues. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Thank goodness I'm a Rutgers fan, because if I was just Raider fandom getting me by, I would be absolutely miserable. I'm Nick Saveri. Oh, man. Speaking of misery, misery loves company, and me and my uh, co-host are both Raider fans. We're not going to get into the sports stuff. You can check out Back Your Play for more breakdown on the Raiders' uh, terrible loss this past week. On the program today, Speaker Watch enters its third week. The House has still not picked a speaker. Sorry, Jim Jordan at the top. Nick and I will give you an update on some new candidates that are being floated around. The latest in the Israel-Hamas war as it enters another week with even more violence and more bloodshed. Latest from that front in just a bit. Plus, later on in the program, Palestinian historian and founder of PalestineNexus.com, Zachary Foster is going to be joining us. Going to examine a bit further the conflict, the history of things you may not even know about the region, uh, such as Hamas's rise in 2006 and how they came to power. And the age old question of when will this end? Where do we go from here? We look at all of that and more with Zachary. Fantastic conversation coming up in just a bit, Nick. Um, actually, let me stay on this real quick uh, before I say hello to my co-host, Nick Saveri. Um, I want to shout out a few different people that have been listening to the program over the last few weeks. And I've been watching on social media as people have been hitting us up, whether it be direct message, whether it be text messages and stuff like that. I want to shout out my buddy, Greg, my buddy, Emma, both Jewish. I want to shout out 
my buddy Ahmed, who's Palestinian. Um, I want to shout out um, my, my friend Maria, uh, who's Lebanese. Uh, my buddy Maciek, who is Polish. These are listeners of the show that have indirectly or directly hit up the show. And the reason I'm kind of shouting them all out is because a lot of vitriol online, we talked about this, and we talked about this a little bit uh, with Zach in our conversation, but we talked about this last week, the week prior to with uh, Professor Waxman. Look, folks, I get it. There is such a rush right now to just post to social media about anything and everything as more horrific images come in, People are trying to play the whataboutism game, thinking that October 7th was the beginning of all this. And Zach's going to tell you in a little bit how thinking October 7th is the beginning of all this is just not the right way to look at this because there's been issues dating back years, hundreds of years with respect to this region and this conflict. So I want for everybody, if you're listening to my voice right now and you trust me and Nick to kind of guide you through this. I want everybody to just kind of take a second, take a deep breath, think about what you what it is that you're going to post and what you're doing with that post. And also in that same vein, I just want everybody to look at the humanitarian aspect of this. I mentioned this in, in the interview with Zach, but there are innocent lives being lost every single day. We're going to update you in a bit. As of just this recording, how many people have died over the last two weeks in this horrific war that, yes, started with a terrorist attack on October 7th, but things have predated in the region as to why this group was able to coordinate such a, you know, well done, I shouldn't even say it like that, but you know what I mean in terms of the attack and how well coordinated it was that the Israeli forces didn't even know it was coming. And there's a lot behind all of this and the angst. And I get it. And I have seen friendships dissolve quicker uh, than, than it took for them to become friends uh, over the last couple of weeks because of what has happened in the region. And I'm not even mentioning, Nick, you and I have a bunch of Jewish friends that we went to college with. Um, there's just so much out there that people are just letting all their emotions out. And we live in a time where you can easily get your message out faster um, and quicker, and everybody will see what it is that you're posting, what it is that you're thinking, what direction you're leaning. And then from there, they can unfollow you. They can send you a nasty message. We haven't gotten any, fortunately. I, I, I think that's because you and I kind of cut through the noise. And I think you and I stay on message, which is looking at this from the correct perspective. You can be critical of the Israeli government, and obviously you can condemn the violent acts that Hamas carried out that, that are terroristic in nature and also still have hostages that are still under their capture. And you can condemn what Israel is doing with these airstrikes in these areas that our innocent lives are being lost because of it, regardless of if Hamas is hiding in those places. I'm sorry, that's not justified. It's just not. Innocent people are dying. We're all seeing these videos come through. So I wanted to shout out all those people because while they've all sent me nice messages and the show nice messages and you as well, Nick, um, it doesn't change the fact that from there they went on to at certain points espouse disinformation, at certain points post something that just doesn't speak to the history of this conflict at all. We're going to get into that with Zach in just a bit, but I did want to shout everybody out that, look, you want to post about the humanitarian part of this. Like I mentioned, you can click on our show notes 
to see how you can donate to the relief efforts and everything that's happening in Gaza. We're going to get into the humanitarian aid that's coming in. But folks, let's just take a second here to realize what it is that we're putting out there uh, and what it is that you want people to take away um, from what it is that you're putting out there and let cooler heads prevail and hope that there's a ceasefire, that there's hostages that are returned safe and sound, and that eventually this leads to a, a two-state solution or a solution that's agreed upon by everybody in the region, everybody affected, okay? A diatribe over. I say hello to my co-host, Nick Saveri. Nick, what do you, not only of what I just said, but you, I've been sharing with you some of the messages we've been getting because I've been sending you uh, them via text message. Uh, we're Again, we appreciate everybody. Email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. You want to tell us how you feel uh, about an episode or about Nick and I's coverage of this, the guests that we've had on. You know, we love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram. Can we please talk podcasts? Uh, follow our YouTube channel. You want to watch the video portions of our interviews, anything and everywhere. All you got to do is type in, can we please talk? We're going to pop up. So just hit us up. We love to take it in. And, uh, and we're going to be working with a partner in the coming weeks that we're going to announce on a way you can actually talk to somebody a little bit more professional. But how are you doing, buddy? How's everything going your way? What do you make of some of this stuff at the top? I'm going to dive into the stats and everything like that with the latest of this, but just the, the what you're seeing on social media playing out in real time, the friends that we have that are going back and forth in some of this, and some of it is just lost on people. Like there's kids on both sides of this conflict that are dying daily, man. What do you make of it all? Yeah, I haven't, you know, through social media, I mean, friends I've had, friends I've, I have, yeah, I mean, there's been a, it hasn't really been much of a back and forth. You know, it's interesting. I think I have a lot of friends that have social media accounts and very rarely are anyone taking it to the Twitter sphere or Facebook or what have you. The conversations are happening in, in you know, various group chats and it's, it's just a lot of emotion, which is understandable. Um, it's very telling that people have reached out to us and I've, I've had the same and have appreciated that we're coming at this from just a place of, of being curious and being open to respectfully the expertise of others. You know, obviously we're going to have another person on shortly. That's going to dive into that too. And this is probably maybe the best test that we, one of the best tests that we've had for, for this experiment that we call, can we please talk? You know, can you have an informed conversation about politics in America or even around the world where you're able to keep it informed in some cases entertaining? Now is not the time for that, obviously, but leave people with the impression that we're presenting facts, we're presenting an informed perspective, but we're encouraging others to make decisions for themselves. There are no talking points here. We're not trying to launch the hottest take on, on, on anything really. And yeah, so I, I would say it's just telling what we've heard from, from friends of ours. Um, social media has been a, a pernicious space for a while. And I think things have just gotten, gotten significantly worse. You know, I remember a time, you know, I, I think most of our listeners are around our age, you know, and then sometimes we skew, uh, skew a, a little younger too, I think, but. I think many people remember some of the earlier days of Twitter and, you know, what we saw as being an informed dialogue really driven by people on the ground, be it journalists or people who just wanted to just pose like, hey, this is what I'm seeing in front of me right now. And we saw that a little bit actually um, 
you know, with the with the murder and the reaction to um I'm forgetting her name now, but it was a it was a woman in Iran. I think uh Mamsa. Masa Amini. Yeah. Thank you. And the whole conversation about what societal ills are going on that would produce an environment where a woman is killed because of what she's wearing or not wearing appropriately, right? And that seemed like the last time that on social media we had informed conversation. And really, people rallied around something that felt very clear. And this time around, we're un, we're basically un, we're unopening wounds that that never heal, and and now it's got even more toxic with the conversation. You know, I've heard you know in different posts and what have you about just sort of this blanket attitude of well, actually, we'll let's use you know one of our president, one of the president candidates for the presidency, Nikki Haley, finish the job was a line that she used or some version of that. And that's, that's chilling because we are talking about, we're talking about human beings. Remember folks. I mean, it's not that long ago that we, we saw the, the explosion of the, of the atomic bomb. Like there was a time that we looked at a country like Japan from the U S perspective, as this is the only way this is going to solve this matter in world war II. And at the time, and even now we look at that and say, like our views have changed about that level of violence. So it's been very telling now that the reaction for many is to look at this and want to unpack what led to this, want to unpack the fact that this is about humanity. We are past the point of violence is going to be the answer, which is fascinating to me that we're rethinking this concept of war, which has always been a just a wild idea among us as a species. And we're seeing that play out now. But again, these are... These are wounds that have been in place really prior to the creation of the state of Israel. And it very much is more so now. And, and it is sad and heartbreaking because regardless of what you stand on, there are people who, who did not choose for this to happen. Yeah, no, you're right. And by the way, I think Nikki Haley said, finish them was the actual quote, something some to that effect. Listen, um, before we get into our first segment with, with the house, not having a speaker and how we actually, uh, provide aid uh, from the U.S. perspective. I did want to mention this was something that we posted on our show account, um, and like I said, you can follow us on Instagram. Can we please talk podcast on Twitter at Can we please talk? Um, Al Jazeera posted again. This is as of October twenty second at eleven p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That at least forty six hundred and fifty one Palestinians had died in Gaza, at least 90 in the occupied West Bank, at least 14,245 people were injured in Gaza. In Israel, again, as of the terrorist attacks and stuff like that, uh, 1,405 Israelis had passed away, including 307 Israeli soldiers, 57 police officers, and at least 5,132 people on the Israel side were injured, not to mention the 220 uh, captured, um, excuse me, the hostages taken by Hamas. There was 100 people that were unaccounted for. Still don't know if those were part of the captures or not. Some of those are still coming in. As of this recording right now, Hamas had released two hostages last week. They just released two more hostages earlier uh, in this week, uh, and they had arrived at the Egypt border. Uh, Israeli citizens Nurit Cooper and Yosheved 
Lifshevitz, uh, they're both 79 and 85 respectively, respectively, excuse me, were released from Hamas custody as Qatari and Egyptian mediation allowed for that resolution. The other two American hostages that were released were, were, were released, excuse me, were Judith Ty Ronan and her 17 year old daughter, Natalie Ronan. And apologies if I'm pronouncing all of those names incorrectly. Um, aid into Gaza as of this recording, uh, 20 trucks are, are carrying humanitarian aid that are passing the Rafa crossing into Gaza on Monday of this, this uh, week. There's about last week, I believe Saturday and Sunday over the weekend, total of 34 trucks were able to enter Gaza and provide relief. Relief groups have warmed though. There is much more required because the humanitarian crisis is, is deepening. Uh, we've been posting things on our story about hospitals not having enough supplies. Um, Zach's going to mention in a second about his recent trip to Gaza and some of his friends that are on the ground that are fighting over water and drinking salt water. We talk about that in just a bit, um, in just a bit, excuse me. And then again, I, I just gave those stats of how many people died injured uh, on, on both sides of this, but there's been more than 400 people killed overnight. Again, as of this recording, where we're recording this right now, you're listening to this on a Tuesday or whenever it is on the week of the 23rd, um, more than 400 people were killed in Israeli strikes on Gaza overnight. This is according to the Hamas-controlled Palestinian Health Ministry. IDF said they hit 320 terror targets belonging to Hamas. Um, Israel has also said that they have captured or killed more than 1,000 members of Hamas. And there's still a potential for a ground troop invasion. We're going to get into that in just a bit with Zachary. So many different stats that I can rattle out here. And stats is a terrible word to use for this. I, I wish I didn't have to rattle off any of these stats, folks. Um, but the fact that you're seeing the amount of people directly and indirectly affected by this as a result of actions by Hamas and the Israeli government, I mean, that, that's over 30,000 people that I just gave you there from a statistical perspective whose lives have all been changed because of not only what happened on October 7th, but what predated October 7th. So Pray for those affected, those lost, and that humanitarian aid can continue to get into the region to the folks that need it. Uh, more on that. Uh, we'll continue to keep following it. All our journalist friends out there that are covering this, Clarissa Ward, uh, Sarah Seidner, uh, our buddy Jake Tapper, who's now in Israel over on the CNN side, and all, all of his colleagues, uh, our buddy Trey Yingst over at Fox News. Please stay safe. Um, and we haven't even touched on, and we're going to in the coming weeks, Russia-Ukraine war is still persisting. More people are dying in that conflict. And we're all, and the U.S. is pulled in multitude of directions right now with some international foreign policy stuff, Nick. And that leads in perfectly into our first segment because here in America, we're entering three weeks now with no House Speaker. And without a House Speaker, again, the House cannot pass certain packages that can go to either our ally in Israel or help out within this humanitarian crisis. There's no way to circumvent and navigate some of this. Um, as we're entering three weeks now, we played at the top of the show. You heard Jim Jordan say there about what the House GOP was, you know, put into office to do, which was lead the American people loud and clear, say House is going to be Republican controlled, Senate, some majority of the Democrats, you guys get along, get together, work this out. They're not able to do that so far. So Jim Jordan lost his 
three votes. Uh, there are people now calling for him to step aside. Looks like he will. And now there's nine candidates that are going to be up for um, audition, we should call it, Nick, <laughs> for the Speaker of the House. We're going to rattle off these names right now and tell you a little bit more about their platform. First, I want to play something from Representative Mike McCall down in Texas. He was on the Sunday shows this past week talking a little bit about the infighting, everything that's happening right now, where he sees this potentially going. Take a listen to this. I have to say, uh, and it's my 10th term in Congress. Yeah. This is probably one of the most embarrassing uh, things I've seen because if we don't have a Speaker of the House, we can't govern. And every day goes by, we're essentially shut down as a government. We have very important issues right now, war and peace, and we cannot deal with an aid package or my resolution condemning Hamas and supporting Israel. We can't. Yeah, you can't even that. pass a resolution condemning Hamas. Because so, so who, are, are you supporting? I, I mean, I, I, I've lost count now. I think we're, we're pushing uh, a dozen uh, candidates and potential candidates for speaker. <laughs> who, who, who are you supporting? I, look, I, 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 I haven't decided, but I, I want a speaker in the chair so we can move forward and govern. My issues, my committee of war and peace, uh, it's too dangerous right now. It, the world's on fire. And this is so dangerous what we're doing. And most importantly, it's embarrassing uh, because it empowers and emboldens our adversaries like Chairman Xi, who says, you know, democracy doesn't work. So you heard a little bit of that there. And now, uh, as he mentioned, right, can't govern if Congress fails to pass funding legislation by a key date that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Nick, November 17th, uh, the government's going to go into a shutdown again. Also, President Biden last week spoke in front of the American people, asked Congress to provide one hundred and five billion dollars in aid to help Israel and Ukraine amid their wars and also some money that would go to shore up the crisis that's happening at our U.S. southern border with Mexico. Um, federal aviation farming programs all face expiration without Congress having a speaker and en enacting some of this action. Um, and that's, again, all according to the Associated Press that I'm reading from here. Uh, there's there's uh, some factions of Republicans and, and Democrats that simply can say, hey, the speaker pro tempore, uh, Patrick McHenry right now, the guy who famously slammed his gavel after McCarthy uh, lost, um, the bow tie wearing chairman, if you don't know, for reference, he uh, leads up the financial services committee. And they're like, you know what? Well, let's just give him simply some more power, reconvene the house, get back to the routine uh, business of governing. But until we get somebody in place, Nick, right now what we need to do is look at the nine candidates, that's right, I said nine, folks, nine candidates that in the conference, the GOP conference, are putting their hat in the ring to run for speaker. Uh, there's Representative Gary Palmer, Representative Byron Donalds, who's here from my state of Florida, Representative Mike Johnson, Representative Jack Bergman, Kevin Hearn, Dan Muser, Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota, Representative Pete Sessions, and Representative Austin Scott. Look, all these folks have different issues at play. But first, Nick, before I even get into some of these folks in the states that they're from, what do you make of week three now? Almost said week three in the National Football League. Week three in the uh, speakers race. As we, I feel like I'm watching a CBS show and uh, we still have nobody uh, to vote here uh, as, as part of this uh, speaker race. I don't know what to make of all of this. I don't know how much longer this can last. Clearly, 
three weeks is a long time. And the math right now is not mathing for a lot of these folks, because I've been saying this for a while. I'm not understanding why Democrats won't go over to some of these moderate Republicans, get eight of them to come on this side and give them what they want and just make Hakeem Jeffries Speaker of the House. It's only I know I know what you're going to get into. I know it looks bad egg on the face, but it's only for 12 months until, you know, you do uh, until the elections of 24. Now, some of those folks may lose in Biden districts. Who knows? But the math of getting eight versus getting 217 on your side, including the person that would be nominated. um, That's a lot easier to do. Doesn't look like Democrats are doing that. There's some backdoor stuff of trying to give more power, like I mentioned to McHenry, but what do you make so far of week three of no speaker in the house here and getting money to these countries that need it, that are going through these uh, uh, different wars? Well, I appreciate you bringing up, you know, what is the impact to not have a, a speaker of the house? I think it's important to, for us to all remember that while, while Congress often can feel broken, um, our polit- our two primary political parties find very little common ground, it is important that governance takes place and there are real costs to this. You know, the the math that you brought up about easier to get to eight than 217, only the U.S. Congress would be, specifically the House of Representatives, would actually be able to challenge you on that because things have gotten so topsy-turvy. You know, I agree with you. Historically, there's an opportunity here. I, you and I were talking about this uh, sometime last week. You know, when we're figuring out how you would do this, right? How would you potentially, you know, someone like Hakeem Jeffries, who has the votes already and is just eight shy. And I think about great moments in American history where Cong- where Congress did get it right. The Civil Rights Act is a really good example. You had, you know, a president in Lyndon Johnson, who I mean, just. A, the, the, the book series is called Master of the Center. At least that was one of the books by, I think, Robert Caro and was able to drum up enough support to get a, a very important bill through. We don't have that form of we don't have that form of collaboration right now. Um, there is too much of a willingness to fight for talking points than fight for what's right. And I I could easily see <laughs> I sound like I'm running for Speaker of the House and I'm not. But we we're not in that spirit and you alluded to one of the reasons i i would give now which is voted is that to be a democrat and try to extend the hand to recruit eight eight republicans you know two things are going to go wrong there one if it's ever found out that democrats extended their hand as you were talking about the question will be well what was sacrificed you know what was traded and unfortunately we have too many people that are so politically polarized as voters that are not willing to hear any anything in the middle. Folks, the infrastructure bill that passed had Republican votes. I believe, and Mike could probably see if I'm wrong on this, Mitch McConnell voted for that. There is room for compromise in the Congress. And if, if Biden gets credit for anything, it's the fact that he's had, a, he's had a pretty successful presidency when you consider what has passed through Congress, this Congress. But right now, within the House, you're just not going to get that support because it is immediately something that gets run through to the newspapers and the television studios. And 
social media of who made the compromise. Because, Mike, you're absolutely right. There is some room for common ground. There should be. In an ideal world, the strategy is to do that. But I have a theory about what the Democrats are doing. And I hope I'm wrong because it's not the most positive outlook. I think the Democrats enjoy being the spoiler here. I think the Democrats look at what's happening in the Republican Party. And it's the height of irony because Democrats have been known for this. And they're watching Republicans eat each other. And they think it's funny. They think this will somehow generate more votes for them. And it, it won't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter if this was in reverse. And usually has been, by the way. The way to win voters is to govern. To sit on the sidelines and not make the effort to try to get those eight votes is really telling the American voter, you don't matter. Yes, thank you for paying our salaries because we're just doing nothing. But the Democrats think that that this just works in their favor. Chaos benefits them. And that is the absolute opposite of actually the way this works. Chaos tends to benefit Republicans. It's the reason Trump won in 2016. Upset the apple cart, cause distraction all around, and you can be able to maybe pull this together, pull this together for victory. Democrats win when they're united. Remember, hope, promise of tomorrow, all the things that you know, Obama, Kennedy, Clinton all ran on and won. It's because Democrats usually produce that message. And right now they're not. Right now they they seem to be more satisfied just being in the back of the classroom, pointing at the front and just laughing and saying, look at these people. And all I would say is that the people that you're trying to win over are the people and voters who are getting screwed right now. Because it's not just about foreign money going out there. We all need a, a functioning house. And that's not what we're getting. And shame on the Democrats for, Mike, as you put it, not trying to even make the attempt because I truly believe there is something and maybe not, maybe I'm being cynical now, but there is some form of common ground. You're not going to get total gun restriction. You're not going to get a complete pro-choice platform, but there's somewhere here that there has to be some room for compromise. And right now, Democrats are not choosing for it. And to any moderate voter, forget party, you should be angry about this. Because Congress is not doing not doing its job, the House is not doing its job, and we're all paying for it. You know, the one thing I wanted to mention is, I saw that there's a problem solvers caucus as part of the That's House. Ironic, it is ironic, uh, don't you think? A little too ironic, as Alanis Morissette would say. But it's it's hysterical to me because 435 people, like you were mentioning before, you have 15 off. Man, it's all right. I mean, but it's the math. This this is Jake Tapper, our buddy. I keep shouting him out because I was watching a clip of his the other day. He interviewed somebody, and the guy said, "This is like high school stuff." And the and the representative said, "No, that's an insult to high school students. It's like junior high stuff." I forget which representative said that, but um, it's true. Like, why wouldn't you try to work with the Problem Solvers Caucus? Now, this is a group of about sixty five or so representatives that are both Republicans and Democrats. They're supposed to come together, like you said, Nick, find common ground, problem solve issues. It's made of like of moderate Republicans and I would say a little bit more conservative Democrats. Why aren't we extending the branch and we I mean, the proverbial we here extending the branch, getting some of these folks to just vote for Jeffries. You want to have a stalemate at the House for whatever it is. I get it. But because, you know, of 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 
having Hakeem Jeffries in power when Republicans have the majority. I get that, but we've got to get back to business here. And the nine candidates, uh, we're going to get into them in, in the next episode because we actually have a former, uh, uh, somebody who used to work for the RNC, that's actually worked for the White House, understands a lot more of this, uh, that's going to help us break down a little bit more of what is happening with with the speaker's race and these nine other candidates. We're going to break down their platforms, what they voted for and stuff like that. So stay tuned in our next episode for that, because it is really interesting to see these folks. And I remember Representative, I think Tim Burchett is his name from Tennessee, saying once upon a time in an interview that our bench is deep on the GOP side. I'm reading these nine candidates and a lot of these folks, you know, again, other than Tom Emmer, who voted to certify the 2020 election and he voted with McCarthy and the Democrats to keep uh, the government open and do this 45 day CR to be able to get us to this November 17th date. The rest of them don't have the best voting records on some of the things and issues that have continued to play out at the ballot box that have affected Republicans, protecting women's reproductive rights expanding health care for our veterans and coverage, uh, insulin cap at $35 a month for those who are affected by diabetes. I know two people in my life very close to me affected by that. So we're going to get into all of that um, in our next episode when we kind of break down a little bit more as this extends into its third week with no speaker in the house. When we come back after the break, fantastic conversation with Palestinian historian Zachary Foster. You can go check out his site, palestinenexus.com going to look at everything 30,000 foot overview of this entire conflict, how we got here. Really good perspective from Zachary, but more importantly, the call to action. What now? What do we make of having a ceasefire? Uh, how do we get peace in the region? Two-state solution? What does that even look like? Zachary, when we come back after the break. Hamas has absolutely engaged in horrific attacks. And every single day, uh, there are more details um, that are released about what occurred on October 7th that shocks the human consciousness and, um, and, and shocks our conscience, our collective conscience. However, we do know as well that war crimes do not constitute and are not an appropriate response for other war crimes. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Better Sleep, a personalized sleep experience for more restful nights and wakeful days. Nick, how's your sleeping habits, buddy? I know you got two kids. You wake up early. 
you go to sleep late probably take me through are you are you sleeping better do you need help getting to sleep what's 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 your big uh issue and hang up here as you're trying to fall asleep at night my quality sleep i i tend to, i tend to go sleep late you know I, I love to read and but inevitably i do have to get up early so i'm averaging probably maybe like five hours of what i would consider like quality sleep so yeah i'm i was excited you mentioned this partnership because you know, one of the things about better sleep that's awesome is the fact that the entire sleep experience is what they focus on. Everything from sounds to help you sleep, you know, better understanding your sleep patterns. And Mike, that's that's really the breakdown that they offer. Super easy app to use. Um, I can't brag enough about it. I'm starting to use it myself just to really just better understand how I sleep and how I can improve that. Because it's we take it for granted, but almost any athlete will tell you, any professional will tell you, our understanding of sleep is coming to the forefront of what really helps to improve performance. So I'm, I'm all for it. No, you're right. Anybody will tell you, you need your eight hours at least. Improve your well-being in just one week. If you go to the link right now in our show notes, it's going to take you over to better sleep and you can take the quiz. They have a take the quiz button that's available right there as soon as you come into the app. So that way it can adjust the sounds and everything you need to get a better quality sleep. Click the link in our show notes right now and head to bettersleep.com for a restful night's sleep. This episode is presented by our friends, our good friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. The coffee that's keeping me awake when Nick Savary is putting me to sleep with one of his trains of thought. Are you, you give me a look here, Nick. Uh, give me a little bit of how fresh roasted coffee keeps you awake when I'm boring you with some of my trains of thought. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Interesting introduction. Folks, I'm a huge fan, as you all know, of fresh roasted coffee, primarily for the simple fact about diversity. If you're a tea person, they've got you covered. If you're a coffee person, they got you covered too. Mike and I take our coffee very differently. Mike is a Keurig man. That is efficient. That is tasty. That's the way to go. I am a French press person. Nowadays, I actually grind my own beans. So when I get my batch of fresh roasted coffee, it goes right into the grinder, then to the French press, boiled water, let's go. But in either case, our cup of coffee comes out delicious, mostly because they ask you at the jump, what's, just tell us about you. Simple quiz, they'll direct you to the bean or brand that you you should be getting in touch with. And that's the way to go. And then they just produce an incredible cup of coffee again regardless of how you do it no that's exactly right you can take the quiz over at freshroastedcoffee.com and in the show notes page right now of this episode hit the link for a discount or enter in the promo code after you've taken the quiz after you've selected the coffee you're going to order enter in the promo code can we please get 20 for 20 percent off your first purchase i'm telling you this coffee is delicious go to freshroastedcoffee.com today are here to help us break down a little bit more of everything that's happening with the Israel-Hamas war and get more of an understanding about Palestine and the region overall is Zachary Foster. He's a historian of Palestine. You can go visit palestinenexus.com. Zachary, Mike, and Nick, thank you uh, so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having us. You know, Zachary, uh, it's, it's so apropos and fitting right now. We've been covering a lot of this uh, war. We've had a UCLA professor on of Israel studies, Dove Waxman, who's written a book about 
this conflict, we're going to get into if we should even be using the word conflict, because I know you said something about that on Twitter recently. So I want to get uh, your takeaways on that. But first, overall, just at a high level for you, you've been so vocal on Twitter about everything that's happening in, in the region and has happened historically. 30,000 foot overview for you, October 7th to now, and everything that's kind of happened with the war, proportional response, whether it is or isn't by Israel, the everyday uh, Gazans that are going through this right now. What do you make of everything that's happened so far since October 7th? Well, I think if we start the story on October 7th, we won't have <clears throat> we won't be able to understand what happened on October 7th because October 7th was a response to a 16-year-long <clears throat> blockade and siege on Gaza. It was a response to five wars Israel waged on Gaza, during which time Israel killed something like 3,000 innocent Palestinians. It's a result, it's a response to the fact that 90% of people in Gaza lack access to safe drinking water. It's a response to the fact that there's a 50% unemployment rate in Gaza and that 80% of people are dependent on food handouts and, and a response to a mental health crisis and a sewage crisis and an electricity crisis. So I think without talking about those things, you won't understand what happens on August 7th, excuse me, October 7th. But if we want to start the, the, the story on October 7th, you know, Hamas um, infiltrates Israel um, and slaughters something like 1200 maybe 1300 by now i think is the official count uh israeli civil most of them israeli civilians uh, uh, as well as some israeli uh, military personnel and in response israel um started to drop bombs on gaza almost immediately and i think israel has killed something like 3,000 palestinians uh, maybe more by this point um so that's kind of at a high level what has happened and and maybe i'll pause there and you can kind of take the, the this discussion whichever direction you like you know, you talk, you're talking about sort of history. What leads up to October 7th? You know, sometimes one thing we've noticed is I wouldn't say it's necessarily conflation, but sort of talking about two things at the same time and, you know, whether that seems appropriate, which is one is what's going on in Gaza. And then two, the motivations of Hamas um, critics of talking about one allege that you're laying sympathies then toward the other is that a fair estimate, though? Like, if, for example, when we talk about Hamas, is that representative of the feelings? Like, does that organization represent truly the, the feelings for all Palestinians? Or what we saw recently on October 7th, is Hamas essentially operating in isolation, not necessarily representative of, of the needs or, or the wants of the Palestinian people? Hamas was e elected in 2006, in January 2006. OK, so that's what, um, 14, 17 years ago? The majority of Palestinians in Gaza are under the age of 18. Okay. So not only did they not vote for Hamas, but <clears throat> they weren't even alive when Hamas came into power. Okay. And there's not really any accurate polling, I would say, coming out of Gaza because the fact is, Hamas is an autocratic regime. There has been no free and fair democratic election since 2006. And so, <clears throat> and it's also, I would say, a brutal regime, right? They arrest political opponents, they execute anyone they believe is collaborating with Israel or even members of Fatah who they just don't like for, you know, uh, for political reasons. And so it's very hard to get accurate numbers. Um, I think <clears throat> most people in Gaza, I was just recently in Gaza, by the way, a couple of weeks ago, most people I met in Gaza, I think, uh, have the same desires and goals as you and me. They want to have a family. They want to raise their kids and, say, and find a great job and live a great life. I mean, that's, that's, that's the majority of people everywhere around the world. I don't think Gaza is any exception. I think I think one thing I would point out, however, is that when you've been uh, um, confined to a 22 mile by five mile 
um, <clears throat> piece of land that most um, analysts describe as an open air prison. Um, when you can't have an, a normal economy because you're living under siege, you can't import or export anything. When you <clears throat> when you can't travel anywhere, you, you can't leave. You know, the vast majority of Gazans have never left Gaza. Okay, um, it, it, when when these are the circumstances and the conditions of your life, obviously you're going to support resistance to that blockade and that siege, right? So I think at a high level. I don't know very many Palestinians that oppose resisting Israel at a conceptual level. They they reject occupation and they support resistance to that occupation and that siege. Um, do they support Hamas? Honestly, it's, your guess is as good as mine. I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not aware of any accurate polling data. But what I would say, what I would add as well is that whenever there's a, a military clash um, between Israel and Gaza, the, the polling that we do have show suggests that Hamas experiences a surge in popularity, right? And so I think if Israel had the belief going into this uh, war that somehow killing 3,000 3, innocent Palestinian civilians was going to somehow make them more popular among Gaza and somehow make Hamas less popular, I think they're sadly mistaken. Um, all the evidence suggests that um, when you slaughter innocent Palestinians in Gaza, People rally around the government and they rally around resistance for the same reasons that people rally around the government in Israel when Israel faces a slaughter. Of course, we just saw in Israel, by the way, after uh, the attack, there was a, a unity government was formed between Benny Gantz and Bibi Netanyahu. OK, that would have been unthinkable only a few weeks ago. I mean, he, these are sworn enemies of Netanyahu who said they would never sit in a government with him. And here they are, you know, on October 10th or 11th sitting in a government with the person who is their sworn enemy. So again, like I, I would say that, that so I'll, I'll maybe leave it at that. You know, Zachary, there, there's so much there that I can follow up on, but I, I, I heard you whispering out or actually saying out a couple of different terms there. And one of the things we like to do here is inform and educate, right? Like we're trying to learn more about it. We don't have a proverbial dog in, in this fight. So as you were saying some of the things there about Hamas and, and, and their political opponent back in 2006, that they killed a lot of folks uh, of, of that side of, the, of that party, I would love for you to kind of explain some of these organizations and just how everyday Gazans, you just said you were there a few weeks ago, can't move freely. Explain why they can't move freely. So give us a little bit of, of the background of how Hamas came to be. And then of the everyday plight of these folks that live in Gaza, that they can't go to Egypt because everyone has been talking about, well, Israel's having all these airstrikes in the north. They're telling people to leave. Where are they going to go? You just described it's not that big of a place. So take us a little bit more inside, not only your visit and recounting some of that, but also historically, like just they can't go anywhere. Explain why. Yeah, so the Gaza Strip um, <clears throat> um, is a very small place, okay? Like I said, it's something like 22 miles by 5 miles. Um, and so it's a rectangular shape, right? And so in in 2006, there were um, elections. There were Palestinian uh, elections. And the main two parties in that election were Fatah and Hamas, okay? Fatah is was represented by Yasser Arafat, who led that or who led that political party for 40 50 years when he died in the early 2000s Mahmoud Abbas took over and um and really for I would say really from you know the 80s 90s and, to, and, and all the way through the early 2000s really Fatah dominated Palestinian politics you know it was basically a kind of a one party uh, um, 
the PLO had a number, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was this umbrella organization founded in 1964 that included a ton of different Palestinian groups, militant and otherwise. And But Fatah was really the dominant one because that was the party of Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the PLO for many decades. And so that organization signed the Oslo Accords with Israel in 1993, which was a series of agreements in, in, in which Israel was theoretically supposed to be transferring over sovereignty of parts of the Palestinian-occupied territories to the Palestinian Authority. Um, as part of the Oslo Accords, there was also the establishment of a Palestinian National Council, the PNC, which was a legislative body, which, in, again, all, always in theory was supposed to be a governing body for these newly uh, parts of the Palestinian-occupied uh, territories that would get self-rule. So that's kind of the basic background to these 2006 elections. And, you know, from Hamas's origins in the 1970s to 2006, Hamas stayed out of politics from 73 to 88. They were an apolitical organization. They were an Islamic charity. They focused on giving uh, money to schools, building clinics, supporting orphanages, religious preaching. They were a religious Islamic charity organization. In 19, uh, they became much more radical beginning in 1987 when Israel brutally suppressed the the, uh, the first intifada, as it's known, the uprising, in which Palestinian mostly uh, Palestinians mostly uh, re resisted Israeli rule nonviolently with protests and strikes and boycotts. And it was in the first year of the Intifada from late 1970, uh, late 1987 until 1988, which really radicalized Hamas during that first year of the, of the uprising, Israel killed 142 Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians killed zero Israelis. And I think that that grotesque violence, um, that brutality, is really is what radicalized Hamas. Um, in in late 1988, they embraced this charter that says we're gonna, you know, we call for the destruction of Israel. And for and and throughout the 90s, they came in all these heinous terrorist attacks against innocent Israelis, uh, in buses and cafes, and and by and so they but they were pretty much stayed out of the Oslo process. They rejected any type of negotiation with Israel. They um, they deemed Israel illegitimate. And so they stayed out of politics. By 2006, I think there was a trend, there was a, a, a change in thinking in the Hamas leadership, which was we can have a bigger impact within the, the kind of the, the institutions that came out of the Oslo process than we can sitting on the sidelines um, outside of outside of you know, official Palestinian political organizations. And so they they uh, they put forward candidates during this election. And I think most people, you know, expected Fatah to win. No one expected Hamas to win. It was a surprise victory. And it was, it was they won by a narrow margin too, right? It wasn't like an overwhelming victory. It was a quite a narrow margin. Nevertheless, they won. And so they, 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 they defeat Fatah at the polls in January 2006. And then over the course of that year, the, 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 the Fatah representatives who were kind of in control of Gaza um, you know, at least from the inside, right? There's still an Israeli occupation that controls the airspace and the groundwater and controls the telecommunication networks and the electricity, right? Israel is still in control of Gaza, but it's transferring over some amount of self-rule within Gaza, right? The, who collects the garbage? Now it's Palestinians rather than Israeli military officials deciding that. You know, who <clears throat> cleans the streets? Who, um, you know, runs the, the, the school system? Who um, does all the civil, civilian, uh, of, you know, manages the, the civilian affairs of of, this, uh, of Gaza is now transferred over to the, the, the Palestinian Authority. But the problem was in 2006, Fatah refused to give up power. They, they lost the election, but they didn't leave office. And so Hamas takes power by force. Call it a coup, call it their legitimate right to take power because they won the election, call it whatever you want. But they, they took power in 2006. 
And Israel, as well as the United States and the European Union and Canada and Australia and Japan, all consider Hamas a terrorist organization. And so there was this consensus, basically, this international consensus to like, you know, basically blockade Hamas. And so Israel, starting in 2007, imposes a land, air and sea blockade on the Gaza Strip. And by 2010, Israel had, uh, excuse me, the UN had deemed that that blockade was illegal under international law because it was imposing collective punishment on 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, this blockade was brutal. People forget this, but but like, the, you know, th there was a leaked report that came out um, that that showed that Israel was calculating the number of calories needed um, by each person. So they calculated the number of people in Gaza and how many calories each person needed per day to survive. And they gave and, and they allowed just slightly more than that of food to food to enter Gaza. So they called it a, they were putting Gazans on a diet. OK, this was the this is Israeli language, by the way. So, you know, Israel imposes brutal blockade on Gaza um, that was deemed illegal because it was imposing collective punishment on millions of people. And because Israel's stated goal at the time was to to punish the people of Gaza for electing Hamas. So they themselves basically admitted this wasn't there was no military goal here. The, the, the point of the blockade was not to like it was also to prevent, you know, let's say rockets from entering Gaza, which they could have done without a blockade. But the point ultimately was to punish the people. And so anyways, that that blockade has persisted to the present. And so you have, you know, two million, two point three million Palestinians who have been living under a state of blockade and siege their entire lives. Um, so I, I think I can't actually remember the question you asked, but I think. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say you you answered it perfectly because I wanted really like the historical lens and kind of how this organization came to be, which I think a lot of people don't know about in 2006 of them actually taking things back by force and why Western nations have now labeled them as a, as a terrorist organization. Let me let me actually follow up real quick on this point, because uh, for the people that are listening and like I mentioned in the previous episode we had or two episodes ago, we had the uh, Israel studies professor from UCLA, Dov Waxman, he wrote a book, The Israel-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. And, you know, a lot of the reaction and sentiments that we got from folks that are, you know, Jewish or have family in Israel or Israeli um, was this was great. There was a real look at the Israeli faults and the Palestinian faults. I want to kind of pose the same question to you, because to somebody listening to this, that now sees the actions of Hamas. And there's a famous clip of Senator Bernie Sanders saying it's not anti-Semitic to criticize a right wing government in Israel. Same thing, like it's not you're, you're not against the people of Gaza if you criticize the actions of Hamas and this bloodshed that they have done. I would love for you to kind of break down what do you say to someone that maybe has gotten into you on social media saying, hey, you know, you're not you're not taking uh, what Hamas did to Israel uh, and responding like like you should. It's a terrorist act. Of course, you can deem that terrorist and look at the violence. But you can also, like you mentioned before, kind of predate some of that of why we are where we are. So what do you make of of that dichotomy between being able to separate Hamas being a terrorist organization and not representative of the people of Gaza, you were just there a few weeks ago, versus the same thing in Israel where Bibi's government is not representative of the way Israelis feel? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's obviously possible to say what Hamas did is atrocious and that it's an atrocity and that we should condemn it just as we should condemn the killing of all innocent life. At the same time, it's also possible to say 
Israel has been imposing a 56-year-long brutal military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, and it's been imposing a 16-year siege on uh, and a blockade on, on Gaza, and, and it's killed 3,000 innocent Palestinians over the past 16 years in Gaza. All those things are correct. There's no contradiction in, 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 any, in saying any of those things. Unfortunately, we live in a, in a society today that is incredibly polarized. It's ne- we've never, I've, I've certainly never felt more polarization today than, uh, um, than, than, than in the past. We can talk about the reasons for that. I think social media plays a huge role. I think the algorithm feeds us what we want and, and, and enragement equals engagement. And so we're just pushed it further and further to, to the extremes. Look, I myself, you know, I tweet something kind of nuanced, like, you know, more analysis rather than like a hot political take. Nobody cares. I tweet, you know, Israel is, this is a genocide. All the, you know, everyone's agreeing. This All the genocide scholars are calling this a genocide. You have 26 statements from Israeli political and military leaders that are essentially espousing genocide. They're espousing genocidal intent, um, you know, but and it's that stuff that does well on on, on social media. It's just, it's the more extreme views. The more you know, you post a picture of a a two year old Palestinian girl, Fatima, who I did I posted this a, a month or two ago, a Palestinian girl who was denied an exit permit from Gaza because she couldn't get the medical treatment she needed in Gaza. And Israel, of course, denied her a medical permit as it does the vast majority of Gazans who seek medical treatment outside of Gaza because they can't get it in Gaza because there's a siege and a blockade. And so they can't get the needed medical treatment they need there. So they apply for the exit permit. They're denied. For In, in the vast majority of cases, they're denied. And this one girl, this two-year-old Fatima girl died as a result. And and that's, and she's not unique. There, there are dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of Palestinians in, in the same situation as her. You tweet that and it, it creates this outrage. Oh my God, Israel's killing innocent babies. This is this is an outrage. Thousands of retweets, right? I mean, and that, but if you say something more nuanced, like, you know, Israel, you know, has legitimate security needs and Hamas has been importing rockets into Gaza for the past 20 years. And so it's, it's legitimate that Israel, you know, ha- is going to impose some degree of controls around what go- goes in and out of Gaza. And you have a nuanced take and no one's going to care about that. Zachary, to that end, and you just just the idea about social media. Um, you know, we've noticed that, and it's not so much about being critical of the new ownership at, at X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, but you know, when we compare the coverage at the time of in the US, for example, of the Boston Marathon bombing or the Arab Spring in 2009, where there was more of a presence of fact-checking journalists and such discussing and really providing informed perspective on what's going on. What's your read of where the where social media is right now? You just talked about polarization. Are we at a place where the tools that we found previously to be more helpful than sometimes even main than even mainstream media could offer? Are we now at a place where that's becoming less available to us? And really social media is just feeding into a into disinformation that's making things even more polarized and le- and producing less informed people. Yeah, I think it's easy. It's, it's easy to talk about the disinformation and the and, and the polarization <laughs> and all the other problems of social media. Um, I think it's uh, you know what I didn't say is that I myself wouldn't be on this podcast right now if it weren't for social media. Social media has been an incredible empowerment to me personally, and probably to you guys as well. How is it that I'm able to get my voice out? You think the New York Times cares what I have to say? You think the Washington Post cares what I have to say? No, they're going to go interview some, you know, political analyst who's at a Washington think tank or some ex-diplomat who was the ex, you know, ambassador to Israel or whatever else. Those are the so so it's entrenched, established powers that be that benefit from the old system. 
And so social media has been incredibly empowering to me personally. So I think it's easy to, to, to point out the problems. I think, uh, you know, we forget that, you know, we forget the optimism we all had for social media 15, 20 years ago. I think when these platforms first emerged, remember the air you brought, you yourself just brought the Arab Spring. There was, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of optimism. In, in fact, people were pointing to social media as one of the key elements that led to the Arab Spring in the first place. Um, I think there are some things we can do to kind of tamp down the misinformation. Um, <clears throat> I think, first of all, the platforms need to pay <clears throat> an, uh, an algorithmic tax, which is to say that um, they're media companies, just like New York Times and CNN and Fox News are media companies, because they decide what I see, just like CNN and Fox News decide what I see. The algorithm that they produce, that their software engineers are writing, you know, is, the al is deciding what I see. Like, it's not just people that I'm following. Right. And even if it is just people that I'm following, it's not like in just like a simple chronological order. They're deciding what to amplify and, and, and what not to amplify. And so they're a media company like just like CNN and Fox News are media companies. But there's one key difference. CNN and Fox and New York Times and everybody else is liable for the content on their platform. If they publish something slanderous or um, or, 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 or something false, right, they're liable for that, you know. So, but 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 these but the social media platforms are not because of Section Two Thirty, and so you know that I, I think that's a big problem, and, and and so I think that does need changing. I think the fact that you know the laws that govern social media were written in the mid nineteen nineties, I mean, just think about that for a second. Section Two Thirty was authored in the mid nineteen nineties, and that's the law that governs social media today. Which, by the way, means it's just an incredible failure on the part of our political leaders and the part of the U.S. Congress to regulate this stuff. But that's that's where things stand today. Right. No, we've talked about Section 230 on here as somebody who's worked for some of these uh, tech companies. So I apologize right there to you, Zachary. Um, but you're right, though, the power of social media. Right? That's how we found each other and some of the stuff you've been doing. And I want to give you a little bit of space here to talk a little bit more about palestinenexus.com that I alluded to at the beginning of this show um, and the site that you're working on and, and, and everything that you're site, the goals, aims that you have for this site? Take our audience a little bit inside of it. I really appreciate that question. Uh, Palestine Nexus originated with my dissertation research. So I did my PhD on Palestinian history, on the origins of a Palestinian identity in the late Ottoman period. And in the course of doing that research, I was very interested in especially maps, also documents and, and manuscripts and books, but particularly maps. Because it is my view that to understand why people started to identify as Palestinian, you really need to trace the, the origins and development and spread um, of maps in the late Ottoman and Mandate periods. Um, because if you think about like Palestinian identity, you know, why is it that I identify with Palestine? I can't see Palestine. It's too big. You know, um, I need a map of it. That helps me visualize it. It helps me, gives me, a, 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 it gives me the sense that Palestine is real. And so... Anyways, I was collecting all these maps for my research and I started writing blog posts about them. And, you know, I was, people were reaching out to me. Like, oh, I love that blog post. So I was like, OK, this I, I think I, I struck a chord here. And so at some point I was like, you know, I should just make all this stuff. available. I'm, I'm done with my Ph.D. I'm not really actively using these maps. Let me just post it online. I just so I created a website, Palestine Nexus, posted all the maps so anyone can download all the maps for free. It's probably about at this point, I don't know, maybe 500, maybe a thousand maps, not just of Palestine, but of, you know, rare Ottoman maps. I, I'm, I'm kind of a collector of maps. So I've got all these maps I put up on the website. And then at some point it just expanded and I started adding more 
more documents that I've collected over the years, historical documents related to Palestine and the Palestinians. I started adding manuscripts. I said I started adding digital copies of, of newspapers that I've collected over the years. Again, mostly related to Middle East history. And then people actually started reaching out to me, being like, "Hey, like friends and colleagues, like, hey, I have this collection of ten thousand documents from you know uh, the British archives on Egypt during World War One. Do you want them?" I was like. Great, let's let's get them up there, um, and and so I you know and then I have documents from from Syria from the 1930s and 40s that another colleague shared with me, so there's there's just now it's really kind of turned into almost a digital archive of maps and historical documents and newspapers and manuscripts. And that's kind of how it started, and at some point I think this is just a few months ago, um, I I decided to like I I decided to launch a newsletter, um, and so the newsletter itself is called Palestine in Your Inbox. And it's a weekly newsletter about all things Palestine, primarily history, but also politics, also culture. Um, and so that and so you can subscribe to to the newsletter as well at palestinenexus.com. Zachary, just bring this to just well, obviously, I mean, October 7th is recent, but you know, most recently we saw the UN resolution, you know, that had condemned all the violence as, as it had spoken to, and the US not uh, vetoing that resolution. You know, from where you stand. You know, for the research you've done in this field, how does that make sense in the form of and granted, the U.S. has also has said that we need to also recognize that, like, there's a problem here, like, th things need to be done. But what was your take when you like, what was your reaction when you saw that in terms of, you know, the U.S. just not willing to go along with what seemed to be like the rest of the world in recognizing uh, the violence going on as related to both Hamas and Israel? It was an unforced error. First of all, even if you don't want to vote for it, why don't you just abstain? I mean, that I, I don't understand that. I mean, I think that was a, a commentary that I completely agree with. A number of people shared that opinion. Um, but look, I think what's happening in in Gaza right now um, is absolutely atrocious. You have a, a food and water crisis. My uh, a Palestinian Gazan friends are texting me that they're drinking salt water. There's no fresh water. People don't have fresh water. They're drinking the, the salty water that comes out of the taps. Um, okay. And, and and they're even lucky to have that. She's like, I'm a lucky one. Most of my friends don't have any water at all. And, and you're seeing posts of people. It's one uh, Palestinian Gaza uh, in, Instagrammer was, was explaining how you had a, she had a, a backpack on. They were walking North, you know, fleeing, uh, fleeing from the North to the South. And a little kid grabbed a bottle of water from her and ran away. They're stealing water from each other. Cause there's no water. I mean, this is a humanitarian catastrophe. People are going to die from dehydration in the coming days if, if water isn't allowed to enter the Gaza Strip. So Israel, I mean, if that's not genocide, you know, if starving 2.3 million people is not genocide, I don't know what is. And and the Biden administration is is it refusing to call for a ceasefire? It's shameful. It's it's absolutely shameful. I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. Well, well, Zachary, you know, before we let you go, I did want to follow up on that, because uh, as we're recording this, President Biden spoke to the American people uh, from the Oval Office today, He said a couple of things in the speech there. I want to get your reaction on something that he said earlier tonight. Take a listen to this. I also spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, and reiterated the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away. Like so many other, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. 
We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. All right, so Zachary, the question I have for you is, and the same thing that we asked Professor Waxman, where do we go from here? Because it looks like on the surface, President Biden is trying to play this center role as best as he can, showing that he can be an ally to Israel while also understanding the plight of Palestinians, maybe, maybe not through action. Um, so where do we go from here? Because like you just said, you're talking to people on the ground that are running out of water. Israel has said that they are probably going to send ground troops in as of the latest reporting as we're recording this right now, which could be a, a huge humanitarian catastrophe. We've talked about ad nauseum of how Hamas hides in some of these areas where civilians are. So like it's so convoluted and messy. And the president is like of the United States, the leader of the free world is here tiptoeing a line between an ally and also the plight of Palestinians that Hamas truly doesn't represent in the Western nation's eyes. So where do we go from here? Where do you see this shaking out over the next couple of months? Two state solutions, something. Give, give our people here a bit of hope that maybe there isn't in this hopeless situation. I think the first thing to do is to call for an immediate ceasefire and to allow humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip before people starve to death and die from dehydration. That's like number one. There's a humanitarian crisis, and Israel still, to this day, as we're recording right now, has not allowed the humanitarian aid to enter. And, and you know, th there was a claim on the part of Israel that they started to allow water in, but you need electricity to pump the water to people's homes. So that, that was just PR. That was just nonsense. But, I mean, ultimately, beyond, beyond the, uh, <clears throat> the immediate ceasefire and the, and the <clears throat> opening of, of Gaza to humanitarian aid, this, this conflict needs a political solution. And 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 so it, if, a ground invasion, Israel's gonna. But what is that gonna do? I mean, it will kill more Israelis, that's for sure. It will kill more Palestinians, that's for sure. And then at the end of it, what have you achieved? You think you're gonna eradicate Palestinian resistance to occupation and siege and ethnic cleansing? That's not gonna happen. People violence breeds violence. Violence, massive violence breeds massive violence. And that's why this attack was so gruesome. I mean, that's why Gazans carry out the atrocious attacks and, and, and West Bank's uh, carry out less atrocious attacks because there's more violence committed against Gazans than there is West Bank. The West Bank. Violence breeds violence. Occupation breeds violence. Ethnic cleansing breeds violence. Siege and blockade breeds, breeds violence. So if you want to solve for the violence, you got to solve for the things that is leading to the violence, which is you need an end to the occupation. Israel has been militarily occupying uh, the West Bank and Gaza for 56 years. That has to end. And the only way that's going to end is with sustained international pressure on Israel. And and, and there has to be a political solution. You've got to bring Palestinians and Israelis to the, to the negotiating table, which hasn't been done now for nearly 20 years. The U.S. basically abandoned the Pal uh, Palestinians. Most of the world has abandoned the Palestinians. And so uh, there's been, and, and so and, and, as has the rest of the Arab world, by the way. Right. You had the Abraham Accords where, you know, Qatar, UAE, Morocco, Sudan basically said we'll normalize without any <clears throat> concessions made to the Palestinians. Now, Saudi Arabia is saying more or less the same thing. We're going to normalize without any real concessions made to the Palestinians. But in order fundamentally at the core of this conflict is a state of Israel, which controls all the land between the river and the sea. Within that state of Israel, there are 10 million Israelis. 
and 5 million Palestinians in the occupied territories. Altogether, we're talking 15 million people, okay? All 15 million people need need equal rights. And until that happens, so long as you have 2 million people in Gaza and 3 million people in the West Bank who do not have political rights, who are not allowed to vote for the government um, that controls their lives, you're going to have violence. And so I think ultimately the solution, in my view, is that the international community and the U.S. in particular need to apply pressure on Israel to to end the occupation and to stop ethically cleansing Palestinians in Masaf Fariyata and the Jordan Valley and in East Jerusalem and to stop bombing Gaza and, 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 and slaughtering innocent Gazan civilians. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the starting point. And whether or not the international community is going to succeed at doing that, um, I think we probably all know the answer to that question already. There's no appetite in the U.S. for pressuring Israel. We just saw Biden say, you know, we support Israel's right to defend itself. We are committed to Israel's defense. And at the same time, he's talking about helping Palestinians. But what has he done? Where's the humanitarian aid? It hasn't entered yet. Why not? So, again, I, I think the, the, the key, you know, the key actors in this conflict um, are, are basically right now the United States and to some extent, the European Union, and to some extent, the Arab world. Um, and those actors need to apply a tremendous amount of pressure on Israel um, to stop the violence and stop the occupation. I think that's the starting point. And then you got to bring the, 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 the Palestinians and the Israelis together to a negotiation table and force them to come to an agreement. And, and not just some agreement seven years in the future. Oh, we'll negotiate the final status to go, the final status issues. Oh, we'll, we'll deal with that later. No. There needs to be a president that comes that shows up in Jerusalem and says, Bibi Netanyahu, you have three months to come to a political resolution. And 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 but but without that, I I I don't see any way forward. Zachary, I got I I'm being honest when I say this, man, because uh, like I said, as we've devoted more coverage to this and different segments to this and different people speaking perspectives, uh, I, I love your voice, man, and I love the perspective uh, historically and also present day that you've been able to give about the region overall. You can follow Zachary over on Twitter, underscore Zach Foster. Uh, you can go check out his website, palestinenexus.com. Can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast with us and giving us a couple minutes. Continued success to you, sir. Please stay safe. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus. New energy drink sponsor on the show. Nick, let me ask you a quick question. Do you lack focus and concentration, motivation? Do you need something to boost your stamina and strength? I do. You know, coffee coffee isn't enough, so I'm always looking for other options. Well, I got something for you, Nick, that's going to boost your stamina and strength. It's going to enhance your focus and concentration. We're going to ramp up your motivation. We're going to provide alertness and stimulation. We're going to even improve your mood, Nick, which a lot of people on this on the comments are going to be happy with. I got the original Think Drink infused with powerful nootropics, performance boosting nutrients click the link in our show notes right now to get a special offer on nerd focus beverages for being a can we please talk listener nerd focus there's a nerd in everyone all right our thank yous there to zachary foster like i mentioned you can go follow him on social media he's got thousands of followers on that on uh on uh twitter i almost said next uh, which that old cell phone device, um, Palestine Nexus is probably why I thought that dot com is where you can go check out all of his work underscore uh, Zach Foster over on Twitter. You know, um, as he was talking there about some of the historical events, Hamas's rise to 
semi-power, you know, not really an apolitical group like he mentioned until 87. The first Infantada that happened there, and I'm using my Spanish accent there for the people that are listening to this that say, hey, you kind of said it wrong. Nope, I said it the way a Latino would say it. Um, so you you think of some of those events that kind of played out. Uh, what happened in 93, you know, Eamon Mohidin has said that as well, and MSNBC has talked about the Oslo Accords. And then nothing kind of comes of this. And then here we are in 06, uh, and then the takeover by them. Um, by the way, eerily similar in 06 to 2021, January 6th, if some people remember, of a group trying to storm our capital again, whether or not the violence equates equally. I'm sure people will hammer us on that, Nick. But um, what did you make of of kind of Zach breaking down a little bit more of the of the history of the region, the difference between Gaza and the West Bank, how many people live in the region and how... It's really, I don't want to use the word segregated, but it really is uh, power controlled in terms of electricity, food, water. Um, this guy was just there two weeks ago, you know, before all of this happened. You know, I'm going to take his word for it as he's on the ground, as he's talking to people that are there that are struggling through this. And again, we've talked about this a lot about proportional response. This happens all the time. Hamas attacks something. Israel responds back by hitting Hamas. Hamas hides in schools and hospitals, some of their weaponry or personnel. So that way it makes it look bad to the international community. But yet the international community has not done anything to step in. And then he gave some great answers about if Israel does put ground troops in there and the IDF does go in, what's that going to solve? It's more bloodshed. It's even more uh, chaos thrown into the region. What do you make of everything that Zach kind of took us there overall and what's going on right now, present day? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I began this, you know, with the, the attack, you know, you know, as we talked about October 7th and, you know, at the time it felt easier to, to separate, you know, Hamas with what, what we know has been taking place in Gaza. And it still feels somewhat separate in my head. And I say this from the standpoint of, of what was a terrorist attack while also recognizing that there is a, that there's a humanitarian crisis going on in, in Gaza. But in the conversation with Zachary, I think he, he tries to draw these things more closer together. You know, my, my takeaway from that conversation was the, his perspective of that. It's, it's important to recognize these two things as separate entities, but also to understand that, they're very more they're more closely tied than that we may be prepared to to accept um i'll be honest I, I struggle with that because what i what we all witnessed you know on october 7th you know was essentially a, a terrorist act at the same time you know there's a part of the world that i'll say it like this you know a few years back in flint michigan we had a water crisis and the way it was described to us, and by the way, we also heard about this in Jackson, Mississippi, where you know the where water was just not accessible, that people had to try to find other ways to have access to clean water. Now there's a part of the world where people are drinking salt water, which you're not advised to do. Um, you have children stealing bottles of water, bottles of water from other people. You know, when we talked about it in Flint. You're rightfully as American citizens, we all looked at this and said that this is a failure from an infrastructure standpoint 
And it's a failure on behalf of the government that, that something has happened to allow this to take place. But if I were to say that the same thing is taking place in Gaza to some extent, then you have to ask the question as to, well, what, well, who's, who's responsible for this and why are we not saying anything? And I think people are saying something, but we're in an interesting place where the criticism of, of Israel, as it relates to what's going on in Gaza, to make the argument that they are solely responsible for what, you know, the borders that take place there, what's allowed, who's allowed to come in and come out, um, you know, recognizing there's a significant role that they play, it means that there's a conversation that we should be having. Does it directly draw a line to what happened on October 7th? I, I don't know, but I, I'm struggling with saying I don't know with as much fervor as I would have said, you know, immediately after the after the attacks, you know, on October 7th. And I, I hope that makes sense to, to Mike, to you, but to, to listeners as well, that yeah, I'm shaking a little bit because I think Zachary presents reality, you know, for the people in Gaza and a conversation or the role that Israel has played in that. And, you know, when when are we going to have that discussion? And it seems like in some parts of the world, there's a recognition of this. But in the United States, there's there's some hesitation to to be open about that discussion, although we have seen recently more of an outcry from some of our politicians, from some protests that are trying to bring this up. And I guess I struggle with the fact that I think sometimes when we're not careful, we can try to use, you know, human atrocity to justify violence. And I'm always careful of that because it sometimes can be a way of rationalizing that act. And I think it's very, I think we have to be careful about trying to justify what Hamas did on October 7th. But we have to also like in our minds recognize that there is truly a crisis going on and, and there has to be an opportunity to do something about it. And, and Zachary, I think adds a lot of detail to what that crisis is and the need for our country, like others to step in and, and do what's right and, and address this head on with the Israeli government. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest, my biggest takeaway first from Zachary was again, some of the historical stuff about how Hamas came to be, were they duly elected, uh, the other party not relinquishing back control. Some of those things are are nuanced things to the regions where, you know, somebody could be listening to this and say, yeah, I mean, I just kind of want to know what's going on right now. Like, why did they do this? Well, hold on. It's not that simple of an answer of why they did this. There's a blockade, like he just mentioned, right? Uh, only about 17 to 20,000 Gazans are allowed to actually cross the border to work. He just mentioned in 2006 about, you know, uh, Hamas coming to power and the voting part of this. He's like, half of the people there didn't vote for Hamas because they weren't of age to be able to vote for Hamas. Those, those are like little factoids that people maybe don't know about this. I think my biggest takeaway, though, we talked to him a little bit about social media and how his prominence now has, has kind of grown uh, through social media because of some of the things that he's been posting. But it is true, like, the misinformation and disinformation, I, I was telling you this, uh, Nick, in our text chain, I'll bring it over here because you know, I'll get I'll get one text from a Jewish friend of mine about, 
you know, some of the misinformation with respect to that hospital blast, right? And we heard a little bit of the president say that, you know, in that clip that, you know, Israel wasn't responsible for the hospital blast. Then I'll have another friend who's Arab who will actually, you know, post something about the hospital blast and blaming Israel. And I think what we're seeing right now is what he talked about, the polarization and the algorithms really picking up people's ire and fever in either direction. And it's just continuing to feed them stuff about it. I want to kind of break through that with this show and with our content and with our interviews to kind of give people more of the overarching theme, high level, the takeaways. So you can learn some stuff about this. I've gotten a lot of text and we've gotten some messages in our inbox and DMs about, hey, I want to learn more about this. Like, what would you recommend for me to do? Well, first off, it's listening to more people like Zachary, like Dove Waxman, who have great perspective on the region and the conflict. And they can also recognize and come to agreement about certain things that have happened historically from 87, 93, 06, some of these key years and dates and things that have happened in the region and what it has led to. Now, call to action wise. I thought he said some great stuff there that I haven't heard too much of on television. You know, I'm very steeped in the uh, the cable news uh, information train and hearing what people are talking about is mostly around the military action of Israel next. It's not really about the international community pressuring Israel to say, hey, come to the table. Because in fairness, Hamas has already captured people right? So they're not giving those people up. And Israel's big thing is to you give them up, which I heard on CNN earlier with uh, my friend, Sarah Seidner. Uh, I forget which Israeli um, spokesperson was speaking, but they were like, until Hamas gives up uh, these hostages, there is no negotiating, right? And rule number one, if anybody's ever watched a negotiator with Samuel Jackson, you don't negotiate with terrorists, right? That's always the takeaway from that. Um, it's just so much to this, folks, I, I urge all of you and implore all of you as you're listening to this podcast, whatever you're watching out there, just stop before you post something and think about the humanitarian angle of this. As I've been able to wake up every morning, go to sleep every night, and I put my kids down, and then I'll watch a video of a kid in Gaza going through something right now at a hospital, another loved one lost or another video of an interview like Clarissa Ward, our friend from CNN, did with this Israeli uh, mom who her grandmother and her daughter were kidnapped in this. Um, and I'm, I think both are dead now, unfortunately. Think about the humanitarian part of this. You know, this isn't a both sizing thing. There's, there's innocent people's lives that are at stake that have been taken hostage, that have been killed in this brutal attack. Of course, there's backstories as to why these have taken place. You're not supporting the terroristic acts of Hamas or the responses of the Israeli government that are putting these people in these situations. Think about the humanitarian aspect of this and continue to voice your opinion by calling for peace. Like he said, an immediate ceasefire, a return safely of the hostages that remain and a hope for the people that live in that region to be able to move about freely and live their lives and live what we live here, Nick, what we take for granted, what we make fun of as a phrase, the American dream of being able to just 
have a family, provide for that family, and all of the comforts uh, and luxuries, I will use that word, that we enjoy here, I hope for those people over there. So always think about the humanitarian aspect. All right, we leave it there, Nick. As always, if you want to watch the video portion of our interviews, you can head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me while you're there. Audio podcast platforms, you're known by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody that listens to us over on Good Pods. Download the YouTube music app. You can check out our show over on the YouTube music app. Hit the follow button or subscribe button while you're there. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform, as always. Shout out to each and every one of you that listens into this program. We can't do it without you. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Savary. We'll see everybody next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.